morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all again. Um, so if you've got your Bibles with you, I would like to ask you to open them, or if you're using an electronic version of the Bible, scroll over to 1 John, the letter of 1 John, and we're going to start there. And then we're going to flip back to the Gospel of Matthew as we get moving this morning. And so, as you find your way to 1 John, um, let me just start out. Um, if we were to ask people on the street what they hope will happen to them after they die, and I don't know if you've ever asked anybody that question or not, I have. If we were to ask people on the street what they think will happen to them after they die or what they hope will happen to them after they die, many even today would say that they hope that they will go to heaven. Or if they don't use that specific language, they hope that they're going to end up in a better place. And this has actually been the hope uh, for a long, 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 long time down through the ages uh, one quote, for example, that highlights this comes to us from the 1700s, and it goes like this, and I'm quoting. This man wrote, I am passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. And then he continued, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safely on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven and he has written the way in a book. And then the man concluded, oh, give me that book. Give me the book of God. And the man who wrote that, who I just quoted, was a man named John Wesley. He was an evangelist. He lived from 1703 to 1791. And the book he was referring to was the Bible. And that is exactly what the Bible is. And if you are a Christian this morning, I'm sure that you realize that's exactly what the Bible is. The Bible is the book of God. It tells us the truth about God, and it tells us the truth about ourselves, and it tells us the way to God and the way to heaven, and it tells us the way to eternal life. And when we read the introduction to 1 John, this becomes evident. And so I want you to listen as I read 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then we'll kind of rewind and look at the first two verses. But just look at what John wrote in this first letter of his. He begins this letter without an introduction. He doesn't introduce himself. He bypasses the normal formalities of letters that would have been written in the first century. And he starts right in by saying, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And then he goes on, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What we have here in these statements is actually a historic account of something and a historic account of someone who appeared in space-time history. And it's important for us to keep that in mind, that what the scriptures record, whether it's the Old or the New Testament, are events that are historical in nature and which, which took place in space-time history. We've got that right here in these opening verses. 
in 1 John. We also learn that the account was written and told by eyewitnesses or by an eyewitness. Listen to these words again. Um, What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The writer is talking about this personal interaction with this person he's talking about, right? And so this is an eyewitness account. We also learn that the eyewitnesses are giving witness to what people desire, eternal life. And so notice in verse 2, it says, The life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was shown or manifested to us. That's what everybody in the world would love to have if they knew that there was a way to have eternal life. Now listen, everybody in the world might not want to live the life they happen to be living right now, but if there was a way to live forever, and especially if they could live forever in a better way than they're living for now, everybody in the world would want that. And so we learn that the eyewitnesses are giving witness to what people desire, eternal life, Finally, we see that the eternal life has to do with fellowship with God, with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so just from that, we can see that what John Wesley said back in the 1700s holds true even today. And because the scripture is the book of God, we know that it shows us then the way to make it safe to the other side out of this life, into the next, where we can live permanently, eternally, and in a better life with God. And that comes through Jesus Christ. And so having said that, uh, we're going to talk more about these verses this morning. And I wanted to set the foundation for where we're going to go. But before we do that, I want to take the time to pray for our particular message as we unpack these verses. And so join with me and let's pray together. Um, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you once again for the opportunity to come down and be with the family here at Grace Bible Church. And I want to thank you for everybody that's here this morning. I thank you that we could introduce these verses. I thank you for their content. I thank you for how significant they are. And I want to thank you particularly how they are relevant to us, especially as we take a look at the events happening in our world. And Father, as we follow the news over the past week, we know that, especially in the Middle East, the world has gone somewhat mad. And the little nation of Israel suffered a horrific attack by terrorists from Hamas. Over a thousand civilians, some babies, some single people, some fathers and mothers, some grandmothers were murdered. And now that region is on the brink of a massive war. And Father, I know that for many of us as Christians, that is struck particularly close to home. For Raquel and I, it strikes particularly close to home. We have friends there. I think of Eitan Shishkoff and his little congregation of Messianic Jews. I think of Guy Cohen and his congregation of Messianic Jews. I think of Guy as he grieves with his family the loss of their cousin who was a victim of these attacks. And it's very easy for us to cry out to you, why, O Lord, why? And yet we know from your word that the Jewish people have been hated for centuries because they have an enemy, Satan. And Satan hates them because it was through them the Messiah came, the Messiah who we're talking about, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we want to pray, first of all, that you would be working there in Israel We pray that those who trust Christ as their Messiah would be ministering to and serving their people with the love of Christ. But we also pray that you would put your hand on that region. And our desire would be that you would work in such a way that the hostilities would cease and that you would give peace. Now we know from your word that total peace will never come until the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, comes. But we pray that you would give a pseudo peace for this time. And that there would not be regional hostilities where many, many people lose their lives. We want to pray as well, though, that in the midst of the hostilities that are going on, that your gospel might spread through those who know you, 
whether they be non-Jewish Christians in the region or Messianic Jews who know the Messiah. Please grant that. And then we pray that you would help us, help us understand these events through your sovereignty, through your providence, and through the prophetic word, knowing that all of the things that happen in the Middle East ultimately will turn out to bring our world to its conclusion, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. May these events help us hope more for that very thing. And now, Father, as we continue in 1 John, we pray that you would open up the text of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. I pray for those here that are Christians, that you would build us up in our holy faith. I pray for those who are not Christians, that you would use something that's spoken to draw them to you through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would strengthen the weak, encourage the fearful, give us all grace to live for you, and then finally give me the ability to speak your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the themes that I just listed from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 were actually themes that were very familiar to the people and the churches who received this little letter of 1 John. And so if you had been a first century Christian in one of the recipient churches, uh, you would have understood perfectly what John was talking about in his introduction to his little letter. And if you had been one of them, you would have known that the writer was writing about his particular lived experience with Jesus Christ and with other people. Uh, He was talking about his lived experience with other people. That's the we pronouns in these few verses. And that lived experience was in relation to the person he wrote about in verses 1 and 2. He doesn't name that person in verses 1 and 2. He names him in verse 3. But that's what he was writing about and talking about. Now, let's fast forward to the 21st century. Today, however, all of us may not be familiar with what John was referring to. And so reading these opening verses, if we're not familiar with exactly what John was referring to, we actually start with a deficit of understanding. And so what I'd like to do is kind of lay a foundation so that if any of us have a deficit of understanding, uh, we might be able to catch you up somewhat regarding what John is talking about. And so the question becomes, who was John referring to in the opening verses of his letter? When he says, what was from the beginning, who was he talking about? When he says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, what is that about? The life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life. What in the world was he talking about? Well, if someone answered my question, uh, I will actually emphasize that. John was referring to the person we know as Jesus Christ. And this person is actually told about in a lot of specifics in four of the New Testament books, okay? We call those books Gospels. Who can tell me what the four Gospels are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? When we become Christians, we learn that pretty quickly. Um, So this person was told about in detail in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now here's something interesting. Matthew was written in the 60s AD. We don't know exactly the year, but it was written in the 60s AD. Mark was written after that around 65 to 68 AD. Luke was written around the same time, the mid to late 60s. And then John was the the, the gospel that was written at the latest time. The gospel of John was written later around the late 80s or early 90s AD. Why is that important? Well, these four gospels are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life while he was on earth. And the recipients of this first letter of John, the recipients of 1 John, had at least heard of and had some or one or all of these gospels within easy reach. Because 1 John was written in the early to mid-90s. And so when John wrote these words to those early disciples, 
they had a foundation because they had been exposed to either one or all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What type of foundational knowledge then of Jesus Christ do the Gospels provide? Well, the Gospels provide a lot of information about who Jesus is, what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, why Jesus came, what he accomplished, and I could go on and on. And each of the Gospels, even though all four may contain some stories that the other ones don't have, have some stories that are unique to all four. Now let me tell you what one of the big stories that are unique to all four is. All four of the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the betrayal of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and we're happy that it didn't stop there because they all record the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his return back to glory. And so the Gospels lay this foundation. These first three Christians that John is writing to in 1 John had this foundation. They understood what he was talking about. They understood who Jesus was. They understood that people might believe in him and as a result of their faith in him have forgiveness and eternal life. And so John writes in 1 John, as I said last week, a number of evidences so that the little Christian communities that he was writing to could be absolutely sure that they belong to Christ and being sure can continue to believe on his name. That was foundational. So let me give you an example of foundational knowledge. Uh, I said last week that I was going to give an overview of Matthew's gospel in connection to 1 John. That's what I want to do. And so let's take a look at, at Matthew. Keep your finger in 1 John chapter 1 and go all the way back to the gospel of Matthew. Now, the gospel of Matthew has some wonderful things to teach us. And it had wonderful things that it taught those first century Christians. So the Gospel of Matthew presented Jesus from a specific angle. The Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as God's promised king, his Messiah. That's why we call him Jesus Christ. The word Christ or the word Messiah means the same thing. That Jesus was the anointed of God, the anointed of God the Father. And so Matthew presents Jesus as God's promised king, his Messiah. And Matthew's gospel calls people to trust Jesus and enter his new kingdom by faith. Now here's something interesting about Matthew, two facts. One is it's the first gospel written. Secondly, church tradition says that it was originally written in the Hebrew language. Now the reason for that was because it was a gospel that was targeting Jewish people of the first century. And when you understand that, then you understand how Matthew's gospel unfolds or why it unfolds like it does. It doesn't mean that it has nothing to say to those who are not Jewish. It just means that it had some particular lessons to teach those who were Jewish. You follow me? All right. So what I want to do is give you five aspects of Matthew's gospel, and then I'll go back to 1 John chapter 1. And so here's the first aspect of Matthew's gospel. One of the first things that Matthew does is that he presents Jesus as the person who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies which predicted the coming of the Messiah, the Davidic King. So if you read through Matthew, one of the things you're going to see over and over and over again is the statement that goes like this. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That's a refrain all through Matthew's gospel. And so he's showing Jewish people that Jesus the Messiah fulfilled prophetic statements through his birth, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. That's very important. Let me give you some examples. And I'll go a little bit slow so you can write these down. If you look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22... You'll read these words in verse 22. Now all this, that is the birth, the conception and birth of Jesus, took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 
And then the Old Testament is quoted. And Matthew wrote an Old Testament scripture. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, that verse 23 comes straight out of Isaiah, and it comes from three verses. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And Isaiah chapter 8, verse 10. So what Matthew is saying is, Isaiah said these things about this person that was going to come 700 years ago. That's how long before Matthew wrote that Isaiah made his prophecy. And now 700 years later, Jesus fulfilled this. You see the point? And so it goes all through the Gospels. Let me share with you some more. If you look at chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, that's where Herod's asking questions of the Magi, and Herod wants to know where this king that they've come to worship was born. And Matthew 2, verse 6 says that after being told that this king that was prophesied would be born in Bethlehem in Judea, Matthew writes, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now that comes from the book of Micah. The prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. The next one is in chapter 2, verse 18. And this is a passage of scripture, actually, that I've never heard taught on that I've never heard anybody preach about. But if you know the story in Matthew, you know that Herod was so jealous about his position that when he found out that he wasn't able to find out exactly where this newborn king, Jesus, was, he sent his soldiers to the area in and around Bethlehem, and he basically said, okay, I need to get rid of this newborn king, and I'm not sure how old he is, but he's not older than two. And so any male child, two years old or younger, I want my soldiers to go kill. And that's what happened. That's what happened. Verse 16 in Matthew 2 tells the story. And verse 17 says, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled Verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. That was a prophecy about what we call the slaughter of the innocents. That comes from Jeremiah's prophecy. And you can find it in verse, 30, or verse 15 of chapter 31. Let me give you a few more. Um, if you look in Matthew chapter 8, Verses 14 to 17, there's another prophetic word that Jesus fulfilled. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14 through 16 talks about how Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law who was lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and waited on him. And then verse 16 says that when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. So get the picture here. If you're in the medical profession, you'll be able to grasp the magnitude of this more than those who are not in the medical profession. But if you're in the medical profession, you deal with people who are ill all the time. Now think about it. Jesus is in this particular place. And when the people here that he had healed Simon Peter's mother or mother-in-law from a fever, they began to bring sick people from the whole region. Demon-possessed people, people that were ill. And what does Jesus do? He healed them all. That's what it said. Verse 16, healed all who were ill. If I want to fast forward to the 21st century, I could surmise that if Jesus healed everybody that was brought to him in this region, it would be conceivable that if Jesus were here and he wanted to do it, he could walk into Santa Clara Kaiser up there in Santa Clara and literally heal all the sick people that were in that hospital. That's the magnitude of what Matthew is reporting. That's who Jesus is. 
And then verse 17 says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. That comes from Isaiah 53, verse 4, a prophecy that was prophesied 700 years before Jesus performed these things. Matthew chapter 12 is another example. If you look at Matthew 12 and you jump down to verse 15 through 21, again, Jesus heals all these people. And then in verse 16, he warns those who were healed not to tell who he was, which would be pretty much near impossible not to do. But this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So let me stop right here and give you a side note. A lot of times people ask, well, how come Jesus was always warning people not to tell who he was? What was that about? Was that reverse psychology? Did he know if I tell you not to tell, you're going to tell? I mean, that's the way people work, right? One way to make sure that you get things spread is to say, I need you to keep this confidential. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Right. There was a United States president that used to purposely do that. His name was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And if he wanted to find out what the American people thought, he would drop a few choice morsels of knowledge to certain people and say, now don't tell anybody, because he knew that there would be a leak in his administration, and it hit the papers. And once it hit the papers, and people began to talk it up, he would know what the American people thought. Can you imagine doing that now with social media? So back to what I'm talking about. Uh, Jesus didn't say... Don't tell anybody because he was using reverse psychology. That's not why he did that. Matthew 12 says why he did it. Look at verse 17 and following. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And then verse 18 to 21 is a quote. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he was not going to be a person that was drawing attention to himself, attention to himself, attention to himself. In our day and age, we've got pastors that are called celebrity pastors. Why do we call them that? Because their gig is about drawing attention, 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 building a platform. That's dead opposite to the Lord that they say they follow. Jesus was not like that. He did not draw attention to himself. That was not his design. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Then it says, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now that last part, a battered or broken reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. Do you know what he's talking about? Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, came across all sorts of people that were absolutely and totally broken. They were so wounded and bruised that they were like a broken reed. If you just touched it a little hard, it would just break in half. And their lives had been so crushed that they were kind of like a smoldering wick. And it wouldn't take much to put it out completely. And the Lord Jesus was so gentle that he didn't break the battered reeds and he didn't quench the smoldering wicks, but rather he gave life and brought them back to life. Is that a description of you this morning? If you would consider yourself a broken or battered, bruised reed or a smoldering wick, the Lord Jesus Christ can come into your life, refan into flame the fire of your life and strengthen what's bruised and broken and give you a brand new life. He's been doing that for 2,000 years. But where is this prophecy from? It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verse 1, 2, and 3. If you look at verse 21, I'll give you another example. And this is a really cool example that I really like to share because this is before Jesus went back into Jerusalem before he was crucified. And so he gives his disciples instructions in verse 21, verses 1 to 3, 
to go into the village opposite you and you're going to find a donkey tied there in a colt with her. I want you to untie the donkey and the colt and bring them to me. And if anybody gives you hassle, if the owner comes out and says, wait, 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 what are you doing? Then what you're supposed to say is, the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. Now, if you know the story, that's what happened. They go in and they take this donkey and the colt and the owner says, what are you doing? And he says, the Lord has need of them. And the guy lets him go and bring the donkey and the colt. But that took place for a reason. Take a look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed. And if you read the rest of the story, you'll learn that Jesus was placed upon the donkey and the colt of a donkey, and he entered into Jerusalem... And we celebrate this act if we celebrate Palm Sunday. How many of you have ever celebrated Palm Sunday? You can raise your hands. I know that you have. Um, This is commemoration of this particular event. And that was the fulfillment of Isaiah 62, 11, and particularly Zechariah 9, 9. So these are prophecies that are written and spoken 700 years or 600 years or 500 years before Jesus fulfilled the event. And if you look at Matthew 28, 46, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. And if you read through Psalm 22, there was a description of Basically, what the body would experience if it went through crucifixion hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion was devised to put people to death. And what does Jesus do? He takes that messianic psalm and he prays it in real space and time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a fulfillment of that psalm in real space and time. Now listen, people have come to believe on Christ because Matthew recorded how Jesus fulfilled specific prophecies from the Old Testament. Let me tell you a story that's contemporary. Raquel and I know a man who oversees a Messianic congregation in Israel right now. His name is Guy. Guy Cohen. He was born into an Orthodox Jewish family. What happened with him was this. His father was sick, and he went to the synagogue, and he wanted somebody to pray for his father, and he couldn't find a rabbi that would pray for his father, and then his father died. And so he kind of turned his back on Judaism for a while. But he came to a point where he really wanted to know about what the Lord was going to do with his people Israel. And he's reading through the prophets and he comes to Zechariah 9.9 and Zechariah 9.9 gave this prophecy. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He wanted to know what that meant. He went to his rabbi. He's asking his rabbi questions. His rabbi couldn't answer the questions. By his own testimony, he says, The rabbi basically said, oh, it's talking about Messiah that's going to come in the future. And because the Hebrew word, um, one of the Hebrew words in here for colt or donkey sounds kind of like the Yiddish word for airplane. What it's talking about is that someday the Messiah is going to come riding an airplane. Now, that's literally what this Jewish rabbi told this guy. So that pushed him over the edge and he totally rejected his faith and his background. And he became a secular Jew. Now, without going into all the detail, and you fast forward some years, because it took some years, he tells the story about how one day he was sitting in a cafeteria, and he's sitting there over his food, and somebody walks up next to him, and he looks up, and the guy says, here, I want you to have this and read it when you have time. And so guy takes it and looks at it, and the gentleman walks away. And he says, you know what? 
I looked at it and looked over some opening pages, and then I realized that what he had handed me in my language was the Gospel of Matthew. And I thought to myself, this is a Christian book, and it really made me mad. And I jumped up, and I ran outside to try to find the guy, but the guy was gone, and I couldn't find him. So I put the booklet in my pocket, and I went back and finished my meal, and then I went home, and I took it out of my pocket, threw it in the drawer and shut the drawer, and I purposed to leave it there. And some time passed, some months, and one day, he was feeling down, and he says, I went back to the desk and opened it, and there was that booklet, and I pulled it out, and I began to read it. And he said, I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it. And then I came to what we have is Matthew 21. And he said, I read chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. And then I read verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples bring the donkey. And Jesus is on the donkey. And he rides into Jerusalem. And Guy said, the light bulb went on. I had an answer to what this prophecy was talking about. And though I didn't like the implication that Jesus the Christ was my Messiah, I had to surrender and believe on him. And he did. And he was a church planner in Israel. And his congregation is still there, even though he's not leading it anymore. Uh, he came and spoke at West Hills Church. That's how I know him. He lost a cousin in the most recent violence from Hamas. People come to believe on Christ because Matthew recorded how Jesus fulfilled specific prophecies from the Old Testament. Here's a second aspect of Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as the king of a new kingdom who gave the ethical standard for his kingdom. And so if you read through Matthew's gospel, you'll come to chapter 5, 6, and 7. That's the first long discourse in Matthew. And we know that today as the Sermon on the Mount, right? And what the Sermon on the Mount is, in essence, is the ethical standard for those who are members of his kingdom. And if you read Matthew 5, 1 to 12, especially verses 17 to 20, you know that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it which he did. And what that means for us is that because Jesus fulfilled the law, he kept the law completely, and all of us are lawbreakers. I break the law, you break the law, the law of God, whether it's the law of God written on your heart or the law of God written in the book. Because Jesus fulfilled the law for his people. When I put my faith in Christ who died as my substitute, I'm also putting my faith in the fact that Jesus kept the law for me so that his righteousness can be merited to my unrighteous account. Do you follow what I'm saying? I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Do you grieve over the fact that you can't keep the law? If you grieve over the fact that you can't keep the law, here's the good news. Jesus has already kept it for you. And his righteousness is awarded to you if you believe on him. And so you can rest. And those who are part of his new kingdom are those who realize that he fulfilled the law for them and then they put their faith in him and believe on him as the new king who provided to God what's necessary for us to be declared right before God. Uh, chapter 7, 24 to 27 basically says the conclusion of this sermon, those who hear these sayings of mine and do them are going to be like a man who built his house upon the rock and the floods came and beat against it, but it stood firm because it was built on the rock. But the man who hears these things, the woman who hears these things and does not do them is like the person who built their house on the sand and the flood came and beat on that house and it collapsed and great was its fall because he wanted his 
kingdom members to follow his teaching because that would give a solid foundation for life no matter what storms of life life might throw. That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The king of the kingdom presenting the ethical standard for his new kingdom. Here's a third aspect of Matthew. Uh, Thirdly, Jesus in Matthew sends his disciples out to proclaim him and his new kingdom with authority, and he sends them finally to preach and make disciples in all the world. And I'll tell you where that's at. If you read Matthew chapter 10, that's the story of Jesus commissioning the 12 to go out and preach in all these villages. And he basically tells them, listen, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves and go out and preach me. And he gives them authority to do it. And then after he dies and rises again, he says something else in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He says this to the same disciples in a bigger group. And this extends to us as well. Jesus says, post-resurrection, now he's been killed, and he's risen again from the dead. He says, you know what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We fret about what's happening in our world today, right? Sometimes we think, man, earthly rulers, they've got so much power. That's what it appears. But that's not true. There's only one person in the universe who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and that is Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And by the way, I'm going to be with you always, even all the way to the end of the age. And so that's the king commissioning the people of the kingdom to go and spread the word of the kingdom and the good news of the kingdom to all nations and to make disciples of all nations. And here we are in the 21st century, and guess what? All of you who are disciples of Christ and who are talking to other people about Jesus Christ are fulfilling the commission that Christ gave to his disciples after he rose from the dead and before he went back to heaven. So followers of Jesus are still obeying, still obeying, still obeying the ethical standard for his kingdom, but also they are still obeying his sending of them to preach and teach about Jesus and make disciples in all the world. Now here's a fourth aspect. Jesus and Matthew taught his disciples the nature of his kingdom. And how his kingdom would come. Now this is really cool. In Matthew 13, we have what's called the kingdom parables. So if you're in Matthew 21 or 1 John, go back to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus, the king of the kingdom, who came to bring a new kingdom, and with the new kingdom, a new humanity, wanted his followers to know how his kingdom was going to come. And so he gives this series of parables, and they're recorded in Matthew in the 13th chapter, so that his followers would know how the kingdom was going to come. Now, I don't have time to go to all the parables, but if you look at verses 3 through um, 8, he gives this parable about a sower who goes out to sow. And he says, listen, a sower goes out to sow, and he sows seed by the road, and the birds come and eat him up. And then other, so- other seed falls in rocky places, and then they immediately grow up, but they don't have root, and the sun scorches them, and they wither. And then some seed falls among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some 100, some 60, and some 30. And the disciples kind of don't understand what in the world he's talking about. And so in verses 18 to 23, he gives an explanation. And here's what he says. And this is where this applies to us. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. How does that work today? Maybe you're a person that's here, but you're not a Christian. And you don't particularly understand what in the world I'm talking about, much less what in the world people that you know that are Christians are talking about. And you're hearing me talk about the good news as it is in Jesus Christ. 
And if you're receiving seed by the wayside on the side, then you're going to walk out of here and not understand what was said. And the evil one's going to come and snatch that away so that you can't grasp it. It's kind of scary. That's why Jesus always tells us, be careful how we heal here. Verse 20, the one whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the person in the 21st century who hears the gospel, thinks it's great, seemingly believes it, and then goes back to work or goes back to school and starts saying, I became a Christian. And people start saying, a what? A Christian? you got to be kidding. Are you one of those Jesus freaks? Are you one of those fanatics? Are you one of those bigots, one of those haters? And as soon as that pressure gets on, that's what this part of the parable is talking about. As soon as affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately that person falls away. Then he talks about another group. Verse 22, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That's the person that grasps the word and begins to follow Jesus, but they get sidetracked. And oh, the riches of the world, they look so exciting. What the world has to offer, it looks so fun. Man, if I could just get into that vein, I'm going to live. I'm going to enjoy. And they become unfruitful. And then one on whom the seed was sown in the good soil is the man or the woman who hears the word and understands it, who bears fruit and brings forth some 100 fold, some 60, some 30. Those are agricultural terms. It's simply saying that real Christians who genuinely receive the word in a good heart bring forth fruit at varying levels. But the point is not how much fruit you bear, the point is are you fruitful? All true Christians will be fruitful. And that's the point of the parable. That's one way that the kingdom spreads. And I promise you, in this room, there are all four hearts. There are all four hearts. Um, It would behoove all of us to ask ourselves, which are we? Which am I in relation to this? And so I've given you four aspects of Christ and his kingdom from the gospel of Matthew. Here's a fifth. Jesus the king in Matthew explains the detail about the coming of the kingdom with power and the nature of the final judgment after the king Jesus goes back to heaven and then returns. And you've got that in Matthew 24 and 25. Chapter 24 is particularly important because Jesus in it predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel. It took place in AD 70 and which is going to take place again at the end of time. Matthew 24 dovetails with what's happening in the Middle East today. We don't know how. We don't know the timeline. But current events are relevant to the unfolding of God's plan of redemption and the ultimate unfolding of the events that will lead up to Jesus' return. What's happening in the Middle East is not happening by mistake. We don't know how it'll turn out. But that's what Matthew 24 is about. Matthew 25 is about the nature of the final judgment. Take the time to read through that. It's very sobering. So now in light of all this, as well as what was written in John's gospel and Mark and Luke, the recipients of 1 John had a foundation by which to understand John's introduction. And let's go back there really quick. So listen again to these opening verses. On the backdrop of what Matthew laid out and what he is laid out in the Gospel of John, we'll look at that in another Sunday, John wrote these words, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. To Matthew, to Mark, to Luke, to John, to the other disciples. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. And here's why. 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John bore witness to Jesus the word of life, desiring that his recipients and us will also have fellowship with those first disciples and with God the Father and with Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Do you have fellowship with God this morning? It's the most important question. Think back to Wesley's statements. Life is just a little while. We are like an arrow flying through the air, soon to go into eternity. If we have fellowship with God this morning, if we have fellowship with Christ this morning, when we pass from here into the next life, We will enter a better life. We will enter the glories of heaven in the presence of Christ. Do you have fellowship with God in Christ? Are you a roadside here, a rocky ground here, a thorny ground here, or a hearer with a good heart? The call to all of us is to receive God's word in a fertile heart. To receive Jesus Christ in a fertile heart. And then through ongoing faith in Christ Jesus to walk with him until Christ comes back or we die to go be with him, whichever comes first. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we could be together this morning and thank you that we could just talk a little bit about the opening verses of 1 John and the foundation that these early disciples had that enabled them to understand those simple terms that John was talking about. We pray now that you would take what was spoken in conjunction with what has been written and use it in each and every one of our lives. Father, if we're Christians this morning, my simple prayer, our simple prayer is that you would just build us up in our most holy faith. There are some terrifying things happening on the face of the world, but those of us who are in Christ are secure. We're secure in this life and secure for all eternity. Help us rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in the person that he is. Now, there may be some who aren't believers. I pray that you would use something that has been spoken to speak to them so that they would inquire deeper and more into who this person Jesus Christ is. And I pray that the end result of their inquiry would be that they would come to faith in Christ and have a relationship with you, the God of the universe. Please grant that. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.